The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I sat down with my husband and the children and we talked about it and I explained to them that for standing up for what I thought was right, it was going to impact our family and it would change the way we were going to live our lives. We had to protect ourselves. So what that meant was we stopped going out every bit of spontaneity went out of the family so if we would think of going out you know do we go how do we dress when we go there do we go in disguise all of that happened hello i'm yasmin shake and i'm one of the new hosts of thompson reuters the hearing podcast i'm the founder of diverse matters and also a lawyer and i do a lot of work with the law society as well my next guest which i'm hugely excited about Everybody knows her name, it's Gina Miller. So with Gina, we spoke about her family, um, the people who have really influenced her in her life and made her really resilient. We also spoke about the lockdown and actually how she feels her and her family have been in lockdown for the past three to four years since she took the government to court because they've had to live a very restricted life in terms of where they go, who they see, what they look like when they go out. Um, So she's very well accustomed to lockdown. We spoke about bullies, how she's dealt with bullies throughout her life and what she's done to actually reach out to them and to have empathy rather than having hostility towards bullies. We also spoke about some of the actions and the claims that Gina has taken obviously against the government. We all know that one, Article 50, but also the abuse that she's experienced various people and how that has led to change about um, how online bullies are, are treated by the law. The Hearing. Gina Miller, welcome to the podcast. It is fantastic to have you on The Hearing podcast with Thompson Reuters. Welcome. Well, it's my pleasure. It's very kind of you to invite me. Absolutely. So um, before we um, got recording on this podcast, um, you were telling us and our researchers about the fact that since you took the government to court in 2016, you felt like your family have been in lockdown really for, for the last three years. And we're in lockdown now and we're, we're, we're coming out of it. Can you just describe to me what, what that period's been like for you and your family during those three years? Yes, it's nothing like I could have imagined when I started the court cases or the actions. Um, I knew in a very febrile environment that there'd be some people who would be upset and maybe not quite understand my motivation. So I was prepared for that. What I wasn't prepared for was the level of violence, both verbally in letters, emails, down walking down the street, and then the escalation of that from words to threats of violence against me personally, threats um, of having me hanged killed, um, Viscount even going to prison. Mm. Uh, It was extraordinary. And then to be contacted by different squads in the police, terrorist squad, saying there are some really serious threats against you and your family. We need to now um, take care of you as much as we can. But because you're not a public person, we can't give you full-time protection or as we would do with a politician. So you're going to have to um, provide that for yourself. So my, I sat down with my husband and the children and we talked about it and I explained to them that 
for standing up for what I thought was right. It was going to impact our family and it would change the way we were going to live our lives. We had to protect ourselves. So what that meant was we stopped going out. Every bit of spontaneity went out of the family. So if we would think of going out, mm -hmm. you know, the small things like, I mean, it's really quite odd looking at uh, talking about this against the backdrop of lockdown and coronavirus, because every conversation was about the supermarket, going to a restaurant. Do we go to the cinema? You know, do we go? How do we dress when we go there? Do we go in disguise? Do I have a cap on, cover myself up, look different? Um, all of that happened. Mm. And to begin with, it was a really strange world to be living in. But then it became normal. And the odd thing is, it's been four and a bit years now. And it I can't actually remember what happened, what it was like before. Um, and in a way, when lockdown came because of coronavirus, it was almost a natural evolution of what we'd already been in. Mm. So it wasn't as severe for us as perhaps it is for many other people, yeah. because I've been living that lockdown life now for such a long time. But the other thing which is quite strange about lockdown is that I feel more relaxed. And I'll explain why, because now people are occupied. Everyone's worried, understandably, um, have other things occupying them. The threats against me have actually gotten less. Um, when lockdown started, I have to sadly say they're sort of on the increase again. But, mm. you know, I had we had a respite for about a month when they weren't there. And um, because people weren't going out that much when we went out, there was a legitimate reason for us going out in a face mask with sunglasses, yeah. you know, with gloves and everything else. And so in an odd way, we felt more normal than we felt for a very long time. So you, you're quite prepared for this in some ways because you were vigilant as to where you went who you were around what you had to wear so um so do, do you actually feel a do you, do you still have to have 24-hour security or, or what's the situation there? no that, that that that's lessened a bit because as I said the threat levels have gone down thank goodness um mm. you know I, I'm seeing a bit of it as the conversation and the bandwidth um in the media is increasing about Brexit then there's a correlation where the, the abuse against me is also increasing. So that's sadly, that's still happening. But overall, it's much, much less than it was before. But there is still an element, there's a, there's a vein of abuse that not just me, but other women in public life uh, get. And it, there is a specific type of abuse that's aimed at a woman of colour. Yes. And that has never gone away. Um, and in fact, that is still as... as violent as it's ever been and I use the word violent because the language is violent mm. um, so I'm very particular in using that word because it is a violation of my right to speak out when those people target me in the way they do and many other women like myself and it is to do and it's it is you know it's one quite wrong white right-wing newspaper said to me you know you you're easy you're easy to make an avatar of hate you know they branded the most hated woman in Britain is easy because, Gina, you're you're educated, you speak a certain way, you're coloured, you're a woman. You made it easy for us, and which is an extraordinary thing to have admitted. Yeah. Um, but I think there was uh, there was definitely that element, and it's still out there. Yeah, and and I, as I said to you earlier before we started this week. I read your book, Rise, which is fantastic, by the way, twice. And the themes that you've just touched on now um, are in your book. So you speak about bullies, you speak about women, um, and particularly women in the media and how 
particularly if they're women of colour as well, it's yet another thing that they're they're pulled down for. It's just, as you say, an easy target. Um, what I'm interested in is, is thank you for sharing how lockdown has been for you and your family. There were chapters in your book which I really, really loved about um, how you affectionately talk about your father. And also there's a lovely chapter in the book about your eldest daughter, Lucianne. Um, could you tell us a little bit about those two really important people in your life? Because they do feature quite heavily. And I feel that, and do, do, do share with us, you know, how, what lessons they've taught you, how to be so resilient, because I think they've had a huge influence in the way that you, you sort of think about your values and what drives you forward. So please tell us about your, your father, a little bit about him. Yes, you, you're absolutely right in both of those. My father, I was so fortunate to be his daughter mm. um, and to grow up uh, at the knees of a man who put others before himself. He always did. You know, if I ever write another book, it'll be about him. He was, you know, a 14-year-old boy who couldn't read or write, was serving petrol, but had this dream of being better and being the best he could be. So he saved his, his money, went to night school and... Uh, long and short of it, became a lawyer, one of the most respected criminal lawyers in the world, and uh, then our attorney general. So, you know, that's an extraordinary journey. Mm. But he taught me the values of putting other people first, of what justice really meant. It wasn't this inflated big ideal. It was the small things you do every day for everyone you come across. Um, and he just had a, a gentleness of his of heart and mind, which was extraordinary. And he was also an incredibly humble man. He wasn't as successful as he became. You know, he still had the same car he'd had for like 20 years. He didn't go and buy the big house or anything like that. He he saw money as actually enabling him to do more good rather than enriching us as a family. Um, so I, you know, he taught me about the law. He taught me about values. He taught me about hard work and using your mind and the fact that when things come easy, they could be short-lived. And so he, there are many, many values that he taught me that underpins my life and the way I live my life. Um, and I just think I was incredibly fortunate to have him, not just as my father, but for him in a way for me to be his favorite. And uh, you shouldn't really have favorites in your children. But I think he saw, he used to say he saw um, himself in me, which I think mm was very uh, incredible for a man, you know, in an Asian background in those days, you know, 50 odd years ago, it wasn't a normal place, a normal sort of relationship. Um, you know, most Asian families, it's the sons who are put first and, you know, who want to be doctors, lawyers, whatever. But he had a very special place in his heart for me. Um, and so I think he spent that much more time talking to me mm. and and informing me of, of, of what he saw as valuable in life. So, his values transferred to me from a very, very early yeah. age. I'm beaming here, Gina, because it feels like you're talking about my father. Because oh. <laughs> my father also, um, I'm a daddy's girl, <laughs> and um, he's a lawyer. And again, uh, he's Asian, and um, he used to always talk to me about cases. And I have a brother too, but I, th I felt as a child, my brother will hate me for saying this, that... <laughs> I felt like I was the favourite too. Um, and uh, I, 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 so I'm beaming when you say this because it resonates with me so much. So, yeah, I've, I never felt, as you say in your book, I never felt that my place in the world being a, a girl um, actually 
that held me back in any way because of the way my parents and my father treated me and the way he spoke to me as well. So there was a lot of um, synergy between us. I could feel that. One of the loveliest things I've had, or, or um, you know, people have been kind enough to send me messages about the book, and I got one letter, which I have in my office on the wall. I have a few of them, but one is from a father of three girls. Mm. And he said um, his wife had my book lying around, so he decided he'd read it, not thinking he'd really get into it, but he did. And he said that chapter about my father has meant now that he spends more time looking after his three girls or with Aww. his three girls and talking to them because he thought the mothering was more important than fathering for his three daughters. Mm. But after reading my book, he's now much more involved in his daughter's lives. And I thought, my gosh, that's so extraordinary. Absolutely. And I thanked him for writing me yes. that. I mean, do you get a lot of letters for all the horrible stuff that you get through? Do You, you must get a lot of support as well and letters like that that stick in your mind. Any other examples of I, I, I get a couple <laughs> not not as many I mean the other one that I have on my wall I only have two mm. on my wall and the other one is from a 12 year old boy who um, said his mum stopped crying when or, or stops crying or getting upset every time she sees me on the TV this was a while ago and he said he'd read somewhere his mum told him that I um, grew up on comic books and, and superheroes so he drew me my own superhero emblem oh. Um, and sent it to me in the post. So I, that's the other one on my wall, which I think is just so special for a 12-year-old to have done that. That's um, very sweet. So, so that was very sweet. But no, not, not that many. I mean, th I think the thing is, when I go and do talks and I speak up and I am out and about, I do get, uh, for all the views, I do get, especially young women from different ethnic minorities. It's not particularly from one or the other. Mm. Even, and also young British women who say, thank you for writing your book. Because one of the things I wanted to do in the book was not was talk about failure and talk about um, how hard it is to succeed. And that just because you see somebody on a platform, it, you know, I wanted them to see that they could be me too mm. and that it wasn't out of reach. Because I think sometimes there's a danger in books that um, try to inspire people that they almost make it worse because it seems as though it's so impossible to be like that individual. Mm. Um, so I wanted to break it down and be really honest and raw. Well, you definitely achieved that. I mean, I, at the same time, I felt you had a, a steel, a resilience, but also you were very disarming, I thought, in that you shared about, you know, you, you were in, a, in an abusive relationship. Um, you, you had a, a daughter with, with special needs and you, you, you showed a, a vulnerability, a, a different side. You, you were showing us, actually, you were just like everybody else as well. And, and that, that really came through. That, that's, I'm so pleased you said that. I'm really pleased because that's what I wanted to do with Luciana. I mean, there are particular themes and, you know, you look over your life and you think, my gosh, so much has happened. You, which bits do you pick out? Mm. Um, and I, Luciana wanted to talk about her because there are so many people who are, are in pain and living in guilt every day of being a parent of somebody with special needs. Yeah. Because it's, it's when they're little, it's fine. But when they become adults, it becomes a whole different sort of guilt because they're no longer cute or, you mm. know, the challenges become much more when it's an adult with special needs because she's a 32-year-old adult now, woman. Yeah. But there's a five or six-year-old child living inside that body. And we haven't really come to terms with how we deal with really special individuals like her. Mm. Um, and, and she does teach me. She's the other person who inspires me because... 
some days I look at her and I think, how do you, because she's in an odd position. She's conscious enough to know that she's different, which is a really difficult thing because in a way mm. um, she knows she's too, her empathy is too much and her intelligence, her IQ is too much because she knows she's different. So the fact she gets up every day with a smile and is happy and positive when the world is so cruel to her, mm. or can be very cruel to her, I just think it's extraordinary. But she does have uh, the ability, and I've not just seen this with her, because obviously I've spent a lot of time with other young people and, and children and now adults like her. And they have a, a, a wisdom that we, I think, in modern society have forgotten about um, because we're socialized to, ju to judge people in a very different way than they do. She's very much more black and white and she's driven by her heart more than her head. Mm. So that IQ, that emotional intelligence is at the forefront of everything she says and does. And it's extraordinary how insightful that can be. And, you know, almost every day without fail, she'll stop me in my tracks. I mean, sometimes mentally, sometimes physically, mm. and make me think again. And that's what she reminds me and inspires me with every single day. And I just wish we would see the different ability in everybody rather than seeing those with what we call special needs as being so much less and incapable than we are. And, I, you know, if, we, I, if I could do anything, mm. I would change that word from disability to different ability mm. if we could only, because words are so powerful Absolutely. and they create stigmas and, and labels and judgments and unconscious biases and so you know if that's one thing I think that would help her it would be if we could do that if the legacy is that you know for special needs mm. not just special needs or disabilities but different abilities because it's amazing they're all amazing at so many things you know we're 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 in the middle of talking about caring and the elderly believe me her and her friends who are very similar will sit for hours and comb somebody's hair peel an orange for them, mm. sing them songs, read little um, storybooks. She could only read sort of five or six-year-olds, but, you know, those yeah. sort of little poems. Yeah. Because she's, she's a child herself, and quite often when somebody is older, going through dementia, or they're going through their almost childlike state. So there's an empathy there, a connection, and a patience that we don't necessarily have in a normal way that we live our lives, if mm. you like. Um, but, you know, it's so valuable. If we could only harness that, yeah, it's just extraordinary. I agree with you. I mean, I've probably mentioned in every single podcast now, people get sick of me saying it, but I, I am a wheelchair user. So I get it, although it's different from what your daughter's experiencing. And I know she, you mentioned in the book that she actually commented on the Paralympics saying, well, uh, no, they're not all that great, mum, because everybody could see their disability, but nobody can see mine. And you speak about... That was an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah, it made me stop and think. And you say about, you know, people, because she is a 32-year-old woman, in shops, you know, she may be a little bit slower um, paying at a supermarket and people are tutting and, you know, being impatient because they've made a judgment. They, they just assume that somebody's deliberately being slow or awkward or difficult. But actually, because of her uh, special needs and different way of thinking... She's obviously processing things in, in a slower way than perhaps you and I are. But um, I think people are quite impatient, aren't they? They can't physically see something in inverted commas wrong or different. They don't really give people 
the benefit of the doubt. It's not because I don't think it's not it's not always because it's not because people are necessarily being trying to discriminate to us. It's just our lives got so fast. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, there's so many incredible positives coming out of where we are at the moment, and we are discovering that in a slower pace, there's more to see mm-hmm. um, in each other as well as around in the world. And uh, I, you know, but you can't make judgments either because I remember after the Paralympics, that, that whole Olympics, and we were talking. Um, uh, you know, Mr. Johnson was talking about legacy. Do you remember that the all the sort of what was going to be our Olympic legacy yes. in London? Yes. And I, I sort of came. I thought would be a lovely idea, and I discussed it with Lucianne that maybe there'd be some sort of a, a a special sort of band. You know, like the um, diabetics and people wear some sort of special bit of jewelry or something that they could wear mm. that just didn't have special needs. It maybe had a special color or a special. Uh, you know, rainbow like we've done at the moment, something that I identify in a very subtle way that somebody had special needs that might not look as though they did so that people would be more patient and more careful. And I remember, um, and more thoughtful, I remember discussing this with Lucianne and she sort of listened to me. She said, no, mum, no. And she was really adamant. And I said, why not? She said, I don't want people to know I'm different. Mm. So there I was thinking, thinking, it's a positive thing, but she saw it as an absolute no. I mean, it's black and white no. Wow, because I know they have introduced something. After, I mean, on the, we're not all travelling on the tube anymore, but um, there was a badge that said not all disabilities are visible or, or please offer me a seat because there's some people with conditions where you can't see if they've got arthritis or, you know, they're fatigued. Yeah. So, but yeah. Funny enough, a lot of those a lot of those um, um, initiatives haven't been that popular no. because of the recipients. It's really quite interesting yeah. that uh, you know they prefer people who are kind. Yeah. So I've just taught her to to speak, and that's a hard thing to sort of get her to be brave enough to say to people, "I'm sorry, but I need help." Um, so that's she feels more comfortable doing that. Yeah than she does wearing something that's subtle. And I I, I would have ju- misjudged that. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess it, if it's available, if those people want it, they can take it and, and yeah. use it. And it's not all disabled people or people with special needs would think that think would, the same. Think like that. Yeah. But, it, but it's interesting. Yeah, no, it is interesting, though. So, you know, I never, it, I think the reason I'm telling you the story is because I can never prejudge. You know, you have that's to, right. everybody is you know, unique and different and you have to check in with everyone. Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I wanted to talk about, bullies because I was really interested in how you deal with them and how you have throughout your life actually I mean there's some great stories I mean I was whooping when I read this one (laughs) Um, when you were a schoolgirl on a school trip and there was a guy on the train who said something well very (laughs) racist actually um, because I think you were the only uh, girl of colour on that trip and the teacher was with you and uh, you just blatantly went up to him and said why why do you hate me so much when you spend so much time in the sun trying to look like me? Which I thought was incredibly <laughs> clever for a, How old were you then? Uh, I was in lower six. So we'd come up to London from, from school, from Eastbourne, from my school. We were going to visit, um, to see a Shakespeare play that, we, that I was studying sixth form. Um, so yes, I was the only uh, coloured girl, girl of colour on, on, on the trip. And uh, We'd come up to London and we were just going back on the train from Victoria and it was a Saturday night evening. So 
um, you know, there were quite a lot of football you yeah. know, fans and things on the train. So it was, it, you know, my teacher was particularly on edge um, with a group of, you know, eight girls, yeah. um, you know, with lots of footballers around. So she was even more traumatized when I turned because we were going, she was hurrying us onto the train with them shouting at me. And uh, I just broke away, turned back and went back mm. um, in the midst of, I, I don't know what got hold of me because there were quite a big group, yeah. but I was just so incensed by him calling me Packy yes. and Monkey and whatever it was. Um, and so I just had, you know, I just wanted to say, and I think there's always been that thing in me that, I again, it goes back from, I don't remember ever being actually any different of, of not letting bullies get away mm. with it, but saying, well, actually, no, I'll call you yeah. out. So I, I think I've always been that that person. Yeah, well, I love it, personally. Um, and I, I love that, I mean, you even did this at school where there was a, a ringleader, a, a girl who took your lavender, which um, you used to spray under your pillow, I believe, because it reminded you of a scent of, of back home. Um, oh, your parents you've, just reminded yeah. me, you've just reminded me of my other beautiful thing oh, that someone's on. done to me. I only arrived last week. So no message, nothing, and I wish I knew who it was, but I write in the book. They just read my book. So my mother's favourite, she wore a perfume called uh, Le Deton, which is by um, Nino Rishi, which has a little dove stopper on the top of the mm. bottle. And she'd given me a bottle because I had never been away from home. And I was so traumatized by the idea that my parents were leaving me in a school in a country that I so alien to me. So I used to put a little drop of her perfume when I was feeling really homesick or missing her. Um, and the girls emptied it out and put water in over the weekend. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't let them cry. I wouldn't let them see me cry. But I was going to say last week, somebody sent me this sort of package arrived at the office. And because we were locked down, you know, we only go once a week to collect um, the mail. Mm. And um, uh, brought it back, and there was this battered box. Opened it, and there was a bottle of the perfume oh, wow. in it. And I was so shocked because I didn't even know you could still get them, get it. But somebody read my book, and he, it, all it said is from my grandmother to you. So it must have been um, this individual's grandmother. I don't even know if it was male or female. Um, but whoever it is, if they're ever listening to your, thank you so much if they are listening to your podcast. But it didn't have any message or anything in it. So that was incredibly beautiful and thoughtful of Gina, someone to it do. it was but... me. No, it wasn't. No, no it wasn't. You nearly got yeah, me there. No. <laughs> but I don't, <laughs> I don't know who it was. It was very beautiful. And, but, but, you know, I... I always take, I don't, and I, again, I can't explain to you why, but I don't take things personally. I think about why is somebody doing something? Why are they thinking about that? You know, why are they reacting this way? And the girl at school who was a rig lead, as you said, I wanted to know why she was being so mean to me. Um, and I discovered that it was because she had, um, she was a, a daughter of a diplomat and her parents sort of forgot about her they were very wealthy and so you know she didn't get presents or birthday presents or anything else and it was her way of showing her hurt was you know that old saying hurt people hurt people um and so I wanted to reach out to her which is what I did and I talk about in the book mm. well you did that recently as well before we're in lockdown I watched a fascinating video of you when you confronted um <laughs> and on well you don't like the term troll what do you prefer online bully basically bully. Yeah. yeah it's a book bully. Bully, absolutely and um i mean you say in the book empathy will always triumph over hostility and um this was very true in this situation where you've got to speak to this guy who was leaving you some pretty nasty messages 
And you, tell us about what happened, actually, in your own words. BBC Training, it was just a TV programme, a programme who approached me and said, um, we've, it was somebody else, actually, a producer who'd read my book and said, we've got this idea, but we don't know what you think. Um, and I said, what's that? And they said, well, you know, do you think you'd ever be interested in in speaking to somebody who's been sending you abuse? And I said, well, actually, I've, for the last few, my poor family, for the last three summers, in the midst of all the abuse and this security and the, the, the odd life I've lived, I've taken a couple of weeks out every summer to go to parts of the country where I know people don't agree with me. And I go with security and I go and talk, uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, have a little rumor or we'll put on social media that I'm going to be there and quite often a lot of people turn up um and once the shouting stops or the abuse stops we sit and talk Mm. um and that has done more for my understanding and I hope for changing hearts and minds maybe one at a time than anything I could have ever done and so I said to them well I've done it before so I'd be very happy but I've not done it on a one-to-one basis before um and they said, well, we know you're not on Facebook, but can we tell you that there is this person on Facebook and can we show you? So they first of all showed me and I was absolutely shocked because being, not being on Facebook and not being how, not understanding how these groups work, mm. I had presumed that these groups have maybe two, three hundred people or something on them. And this was a group with over 25,000 and it was the most vile, racist, abusive, the imagery was all of soldiers and war and battle and, you know, me as the enemy, mm. you know, and not just me, but other people, but a lot of it was it was uh, um, directed at me. And they said, um, you know, would you like to meet him face to face? And I just, without hesitation, said yes. And when they, an odd moment when they said, then they said, um, his name is Alan and I, my husband's also Alan. And I thought, oh, okay, this is very strange. Mm. Um, anyway, we, we met and once we got talking, because I wanted to say sorry to him because I'm living with anger, living with pain and hurt and anger and feeling that no one listens to you or loves you or cares about your life Mm. must be an incredible burden. So when we met and I said to him, I'm sorry that you have to live with this, the whole interview changed. And we discovered we had so much in common. Mm. He has a 14-year-old son. I have a 14-year-old son. He felt that uh, he was in a place that I was once in. He'd lived in his car when he had no money, nothing. I've done the same. Um, But I think it was the day after, the email he sent me the day after, which I will treasure. And we still speak now. Oh, wow. Um, You know, this was a few months ago. And we still exchange emails and, you know, we still talk. And the email he sent me the following day was words I probably never imagined that I would hear from this person who had been bullying or abusing me. And he said, thank you for being kind lady, for being a kind lady and helping me heal. And I thought, that's incredible. My gosh, because I didn't expect to hear from him after And he'd asked the, he'd sent it to the producers and asked them if they'd send it to me. And would I be comfortable with us um, corresponding directly ongoing? And I said, absolutely. Mm Yes. And you know, his son hopefully his 14 year old son will live a different life after we have met than we would have before because mm, he was a single dad wasn't he and he had some struggles yes. and he felt disenfranchised and, and yeah but that anger can you imagine that that the conversations and that anger would have would have poisoned yeah. his son's heart and mind every single day yeah. whereas now hopefully 
he is a he is a he's a dad who who understands people differently people like me and sees somebody of color differently mm. and so hopefully so will his son now yeah because I think he saw you as a human being and he was probably surprised at how much you did have in common because he starts off the interview saying you know I thought you were rich and all this and elite and and yeah. didn't even know you were tall I mean, it- well, before we started recording, we were chatting for a little bit. Oh, no, sorry, after because I didn't see him uh, on the ca- on the piece that's filmed. It is the very first time I meet him. Yeah. So afterwards, we had a little meeting, and I sort of we, we were t- still carried on chatting. And one of the stories he told me, um, which I wish we the cameras had been rolling, but he was saying to me, "Oh, where he lives, you know, he has really awful, awful um, neighbors because he also has an eldest daughter and a, a grandchild, I think." But they, he said, so he, they can't come around and go in the garden because there are all these, um, it's all started with Brexit. He said there are all these Poles and Romanians and they're out there and they're smoking and swearing and drinking and spitting. And, you know, he was absolutely, and I said, oh my gosh, that's absolutely disgusting behavior. You mm. know, you and your, your family shouldn't have to put up with mm. that. But I said, would you, you have put up with it if there were a group of Englishmen? Mm. And he sort of looked at me and said, what do you mean? And I said, bad behavior is bad behavior it isn't confined to where somebody comes from or their race or their, you know, their ethnicity. Those men were behaving like bad neighbours. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and said, do you know, I'd never thought about that. Wow. And I wish we'd got that that's off film powerful. as well, but we didn't. Yeah, that's very but, um But I think that's the thing, if you know, and, and that's what I think we need to do is, is reach across. And the odd thing is, <laughs> and I've now known it for so many years and I'm, lucky in a way that I have a mindset that that uh, you know I'm quite comfortable in my own skin and my own decisions that I make but I I also get abuse from people who you would imagine would support me because they find it difficult to understand that I'm or they see it sometimes as me betraying their side or their thought process or their group or tribe whatever you want to call it because I do reach across um but that's the only way I think we move forward. Mm, it's having a dialogue and, and meeting someone at where they are and having some empathy with their situation, isn't it? You have to get people to see you as a person, mm. as, as, as somebody who's the same, not different. Yeah. I mean, the, the abuse that you got from Rodri Phillips, um, very <laughs> shocking. With I mean, he represented, I mean, this, this, give us a little bit of background for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with that case. So I was, um, again, it was a face, closed Facebook book, uh, a group, so I didn't know about it. But one person in the group felt very guilty and sent me a screen grab of this uh, uh, Viscount um, Davis, it was fourth generation Viscount, who had offered £5,000 on this group for somebody to run me over and kill me. Um, and uh, he sort of in court, you know, I, I worked with the CPS and um, I have to say, it, you know, we worked hard because it's now set a precedent and I wanted to because it was at the time we didn't really understand how you could bring um, criminal prosecutions for online um, communications, malicious communications. And my view to them was it's not the medium, it's the message. We have laws in place and we should be able to use them. Mm. So it was a, it was a test case and we won, uh, which is I'm very pleased to say is now set that precedent. But the fact is, he said his his defense was he was joking and it was a closed group of friends yeah. and he didn't mean it. But, you know, not very many people have sort of 500 odd friends as he had in the group. And the person who sent it to me said, well, other people were taking it seriously. 
And what was so chilling is that he and his friends, most of them lived around where I worked, where my offices were in, in um, Chelsea. Mm. So I, it was very possible. Um, and then other conversations sparked off it. But, you know, the fact that um, it wasn't really the charge we should have brought when he got six weeks um, in a central London Brixton prison, I think for a Viscount, that probably was quite um, uh, an ordeal for him. Mm. But it was extraordinary to me. I mean, and he he just saw me. I mean, his defence was that I was an animal. I mean, it, he literally defended the fact mm. that he could say these things about me because I wasn't equal to him. I was not the, I, I was a, a lesser human being. Yeah, completely dehumanised you. And there was a chance that he would um, have to, to uh, speak to you at court because he was representing himself, wasn't he? But that didn't happen in the end, I understand. That was a very difficult day for me because when they said that I'd, he, I would have to go into court and give evidence and uh, he would have the opportunity to cross-examine mm. me, I couldn't understand, and, and you know, I've, I've fought for this for such a long time, be it for domestic violence or rape victims, wherever it is, you know, I've been campaigning for, long, for a long time. And these are things that I've, I've always thought that it is wrong that a victim should have to go through the ordeal again by being cross-examined by the uh, perpetrator if they're representing themselves. Mm. Um, and, and quite often it's used by the perpetrators as a way of getting a case dropped. But at the very last minute, I think, he was advised that uh, I would come to court and that and the, so he dropped that defense in the end mm. so I didn't have to but I was waiting in the back of the court ready to go in that's still the case then isn't it can you is, is there a screen I believe that sometimes um you can you can but in this case it wouldn't have been because it was it, it was just the whole thing would have been slightly different but um yes you can for victims now you have video links and that's it but it's still an ordeal mm. it's reliving the trauma isn't it yeah it's it's reliving the trauma and it gives the perpetrator the opportunity to paint you mm. as a bad person, weak, but whatever it is, you know, it gives them an opportunity to to violate you. And I just think that's wrong. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. So the CPS, as a result of that, there was a policy change. So what, what exactly is that change then? When someone posts something online, is it the same equivalent? Yes, yeah, so, so it's under, we can, you would could be charged under the Malicious Communications Act because um, before they weren't sure because the Malicious Communications Act was it was written in a time before social mm. media and, and online. And this is the thing with many actually of our acts, we still have that issue that many of them were written in the 90s or pre the modern age of technology that we live in. And it is still an issue. And I actually think a lot of it needs to be overhauled. Mm. But, you know, it just means now that the president said that somebody in Facebook or online, if they, um, uh, you know, can uh, malicious communication or um, inciting um, sexual or racial violence, you can use the two older acts. Mm, mm. Well, that's a good thing then. That that was a test case then, and that 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 led to to positive change. There's there's something else that you told me recently you're doing, which again, where we have moved on as a society, and technology almost needs to catch up well the law needs to catch up with where we are and that's about messages of love do you want to tell our listeners about what what that that's that's your latest venture I think that was launched in May of this year is that right yes yeah, so we, we I launched it in the beginning of May I only wish I could have launched it earlier but um when I was going through the period of the last three four years when I I really 
used to leave the house in the morning thinking this could be the last day I see my children or something could happen to me because I didn't take them out with me. We, we stopped going out as a family because I was always worried that something might happen to me with them there or with them, you know, to them when they're with me. So I um, which a lot of people have done when you're in that place. I started I wrote them individual letters of love of, um, you know, in case anything would happen to me. And I I wrote one to my husband, which I say I have to say, I kept adding to and became more like a manual than a letter. But mm. <laughs> you know, um, and, and actually had quite a lot of humor in it. But you know, it just and and when I was watching the tragedy of of victims of COVID going into um, ambulances and dying in hospital and never having the chance to say goodbye and families being left with that sense of guilt, no closure, no funerals, nothing. I mean, the inhumanity of it made me think of those. Um, messages those letters of love that I was writing to my children and I thought if only there was a way we could use technology because the way the disease it happened so quickly it's there but we have technology we have our phones mm. and I thought if people could leave a message because you wouldn't leave the same message to all of your children you know you'd leave a different mm. message to your children to your husband to your friends whatever and so I thought what I could do is um launch a platform where I could do digital um, message uh, memory boxes where people could record and then download um, securely their messages of love. And then I started talking to a few people about it and they would all be encrypted because if things get better, you might not want them to be there. So then you can go back in and, just, and delete them. So that was all fine. So photographs, messages, handwritten notes, scans, photographs, fine. But then I started getting messages from I discovered people who work in run frontline services seem to have an empathy and a vocational mindset where their partners are also frontline workers or work in a similar you know field where they're vulnerable to COVID. And I got some concerning um, inquiries from parents who were saying, we don't have a will, we don't have any guardianship arrangements in place. Um, we've had another, just different scenarios. And uh, I suddenly realized that actually, this isn't fair. You've got so much going on. And yet the, the possibility of people not being provided for, or for children having to, to be, you know, if you don't have a guardianship agreement, a, 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 a arrangement in your will, mm. then a court could decide to put your child into care or to put it with somebody you don't want them to, you know, to bring them up. Mm. And, and I thought, well, with all the, um, analogies to war during wars there are these things called oral bedside wills and it just seemed so obvious to me common sense that the government in with its emergency powers could bring in emergency will legislation that would allow people to at their bedside use audio and visual use technology to record their wishes maybe about their funeral about their pets about their children about updating their will and then you know, that's one thing. But then we were also offering the possibility of you depositing it in our uh, memory boxes, which meant that we do another level of encryption. Because for years now, a lot of people have been thinking that will legislation that goes all the way back to 1837 is not fit for purpose mm. in against the modern drop um, uh, backdrop of how we live our lives. Because also you have unmarried couples who are not treated in the eyes of law as partners unless they have a legally binding relationship. You know, there's so many things where it doesn't reflect in modern thinking and modern way of life. And uh, it seemed to be, you know, exposed. Coronavirus is exposed, actually, an awful lot of weaknesses, I think, in our society and actually in law. Um, and so I started a campaign to try and reform 
wills to bring it more up to date to include technology because the the excuse for why we can't do it and it's very antiquated is because people could be could could be coerced or undue pressure mm. actually technology takes that away because you it's very difficult to alter an audiovisual file mm. i mean unless you're an absolute expert you know all the properties in there and actually that the there is a footprint a technical uh, a technology footprint which is very secure and means that those problems are less not more mm. Um, so in the midst of doing that, just in case, the messages of love is a free and, you know, I wanted it to be free and accessible to all. So it's a free digital memory box service. But at the same time, I'm campaigning for the government. I really hope that they will look at emergency legislation in case we have another second or if we do have a second wave, because people must be able to leave their wishes. Mm. That's interesting. I, I will watch with interest as to how that develops. So that was launched in May and that's an ongoing an ongoing project that you've 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 got going then. Yes. Um, lastly, Jean, I mean, there's there's too much to talk about. I mean, we'll have to do a second <laughs> interview at some point. Um, I couldn't ignore the fact that um, you know the Black Lives Matter movement is going on, and um, and you won uh, in in October 2017 the most UK's most influential Black person on the on the power list. Just wondered if you had any thoughts what was going on now um, with the death of George Floyd and and the the movement and you know as a as a, as a woman of colour if you, if you wanted to share something with us your thoughts. There is so much. There, there, there is so much. There is so much. But we have structural discrimination in the apparatus of our society, be it from education, from work, health birth you know every part of our society the fabric of our society is um is is imbued with systemic discrimination so what worries me with this is what happens when the news trucks roll away mm. will this really be a time for change and i'm hoping that it really becomes something that's lasting and for that to happen we have to have more than the protests, which are so important, but there must be a plan of action. There's got to be a plan that backs up this call for change. And we need to move on to that. And before it drifts away in the next wave of consciousness, you know, be it Me Too, we've had that, we've had um, Extinction Rebellion. You know, there we are, we're living in a world where now it's sort of global camaraderie is becoming more popular, but it also rises very quickly and can disappear very quickly and i just want those who are really calling for change in wherever they are to really mean it mm. be they in position of powers in corporates in top of educational institutions from those who are writing our policies change comes from those who can make change happen mm. and the, i hope the people in positions of power understand that if they don't address this it will bubble up in the future because this is not going to go away. Discrimination is a blight on our society and it is something that we have put plasters over for too long. And I think this movement, Black Lives Matter, of course, every life matter. I understand mm. that. But at certain times in our history, some things matter more than others, be it from you know, the time of, of uh, you know, women's votes mm. to, as I said, from a long ago as that to the Me Too movement recently. We have to have real systemic change because this is a systemic problem. Yes, 
Yes, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Gina Miller, you have been a fantastic guest. Thank you for sharing uh, your story and being so open with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. The Hearing. So thank you for listening to The Hearing Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast or if you've got any feedback, good or bad, or suggestions of guests or topics, then please do follow us on Twitter at Hearing Podcast, or you can find me at Diverse Matters. Subscribe, rate us, comment. We'd love to hear from you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.